Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace in your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know... There is no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was, a re- there was relief... He hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. 
But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, which is true and good and powerful. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we don't come approaching it as a a book of wisdom or a book of good advice. We come looking for life. We don't ask you for normal and natural things. We ask you to do super normal and supernatural things in our midst, Lord, in this place. So would you fill Mark up with your spirit? Would you fill all of us up with your spirit? Would you change us so that we look more and more like your son, Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. My name is Mark Jennings. I am an elder here at South Shore Baptist Church, and I appreciate God when giving me the opportunity to look at the word of the Lord with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, as Pastor Godwin mentioned, uh, we've been working through Exodus. We've been working through this, this great narrative, this second book of the Old Testament that uh, details how God brought his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt under the dominion of Pharaoh. We will start to see, too, as he, as he brings his people out of Egypt, he establishes a covenant with them, a, a relationship with them. And, and in many ways, Exodus is a love story. Now, I grant you, it's a very odd love story. Most love stories do not have rivers turning into blood, lands teeming with frogs and swarms of bugs. But hear me out. In Exodus, we see God revealing himself to his people with the desire to be their God. We see God rescuing the Israelites, hearing their cries of bondage, rescuing them from slavery, but not for freedom's sake. We don't see God bringing the Israelites out of bondage just so they can be out of bondage. We see God acting and intervening. We see him doing this great movement so that his people can be with him. I suppose I might put it this way. God does not seek to rescue the Israelites because They shouldn't be slaves. He seeks to rescue the Israelites because he desires a great union to have with them, a great love, a great covenant with them. I suppose then as we go into today and all of our studies of Exodus, we should be asking ourselves two questions. What is God telling me about himself in this great story. Not what did Moses tell me about God. What is God telling me about himself in this great story? And what is God telling me about the relationship he desires with his people? You know, last week, Godwin uh, brought to uh, our attention how uh, God uniquely reveals himself as Redeemer. How prior to the Exodus narrative, God had revealed parts of his character and his identity in a variety of ways, but it wasn't until Exodus that he presents himself as Redeemer. That to know God in a relationship, to know God in covenant, to be part of that great love story, means to know him as one who has been redeemed. Of course, in this sort of great unfolding and and, and mystery of God, this, this requires the enslavement of his people. 
You see, God doesn't reveal himself in theory. He reveals himself experientially for his people to know him as redeemer required the enslavement of his people. Now today we begin the account of the plagues. And, and when we look into the plagues, we begin to see that great decision of God to redeem his people start to take root. I, 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 love, I love the plagues. That sounds strange to say. I, I grant you that. But it's one of those things that just says Old Testament God, right? When we, when we think of Old Testament God, we think of the plagues, right? We have uh, land being smoked and people being smoked and animals. And sm- they're smoting all over the place. This is, this is Old Testament God, you know? In fact, uh, probably if you talk about the Exodus story with people who have a very little knowledge of it and you say, tell me something about uh, Exodus, they're going to tell you plagues and the Red Sea, right? Those are sort of these two huge events. There's just something fascinating about the plagues. And it's, it's this this cool scene, right? You've got, uh, you've got God and, 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 and Moses and Aaron. You have Team Yahweh on one side. And, and on the other side, you have Pharaoh and his magicians. And, and they're, they're going at it toe-to-toe. It's this huge fight. And you know, people are being affected. Nature is being affected. No wonder so many movies are made of the plagues. Like, if, if you need to make a movie out of something, this is what you use. Let my people go, no! Ah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And so I'm looking at these plagues so full of drama, and, and, and I started asking myself, why? Why ten? And, and I don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying what is significant about the number ten. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, and here we have the base system of the, the, the decimal system in completion being put forth to show symbolically the fullness of the plagues. No, no, I'm not saying 10. I'm, I guess what I'm saying is why more than one, right? You know, why more than one? What was sort of the purpose of the plagues? Why did we have to have several? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. God has already told us why the plagues. I mean, it's clear from the outset God intends to do them. I mean, just, just look real quickly with me. Look at you know, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. We looked at this last week. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with mighty acts of judgment. Verse 7. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You know, turn just to chapter 7, verse 4. Let's start with verse 3. 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We're going to talk about that. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, those are the plagues, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with mighty acts of judgment. And I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. So even in these couple of verses, and there's one more we're going to look at in a second, we start to get this answer to the plagues. What they're for. The plagues are not a way of persuading Pharaoh. I think that's something we need to recognize from the outset. Pharaoh will have opportunities to respond to the plagues, but what God has already put in motion with the plagues is that they are signs, signs simultaneously of his judgment on Pharaoh 
and the Egyptians and, and their rebellion against God and their treatment of his people. And they are also signs of salvation to the Israelites. That the, the plagues reveal to the Israelites God's desire to say, you're mine. And the, to the Egyptians, you're judged. So he intends to do them. So there's, there's something then about the, the multiplicity of the plagues that is necessary to demonstrate this unmistakable truth. It's more than one plague because there must be without question and without doubt. And he does this in a way, as we're going to see, God does this in a way that neuters the gods of the Egyptians. In fact, Exodus 12, 12, just turn over there real quick too as well. Exodus 12, 12, this is uh, in discussing sort of the, 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 the final plague. Verse 12, on that same night... I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And notice here, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So there's a sense, too, that the plagues bring evidence of God's superiority over the gods of Egypt. The plagues, then, are message carriers. They answer this question of who God is. Last week, we discussed how God is Redeemer. And beginning with this passage, we see him as strong Redeemer. Or even better, the stronger one who redeems. God runs up the score, if you will, with these plagues. And he leaves, no doubt. Now, this great battle... Uh, this, 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 these plagues of judgment and redemption first begin in a very small way, in a, in a private setting with an audience with Pharaoh. And, and what is probably my favorite part of the section we looked at, um, that might be incorrect to say you have a favorite part, but we all do. And, and, and I love this scene. So uh, it's this scene with the, the snake, Let's, let's look at this. Verse, verse, I'll just start with verse 8 and 10. Here, chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Sidebar here, isn't it so nice to hear See Moses not stammering about how he can't do something or won't do something or shouldn't do something. He, he just obeys here. This beautiful statement about Moses. Moses finally realizes, yes, that's right. You can't do anything, Moses. God does it. And so now he just obeys. He just obeys. It's so good to see obedience in the heroes of the faith. So anyway, so, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, verse 10. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. I love it. I, I love it. And, and one of the reasons I love it is, is because, uh, uh, because it becomes a snake. Now, it's probably important to, here to understand why a snake is so significant. You know, because it's more, in other words, it's more than just the ability to, you know, you know, transfigure something. You know, this is not sort of a, a Harry Potter magic class where you can take, you know, something that physically is one thing and then it becomes something else. It's, it's more than that. It's important that it becomes a snake. Because on one hand, if we don't recognize what a snake is in uh, Egyptian thought world, and I'll talk about that in a second, we might wonder... Why not a horse? That would be cool. <laughs> Throw your staff down. It's like, Poof. I mean, because at some point you think, you know, staff, snake, about the same size. Or why not? I was having some fun with this. I was going, what would have been a really interesting animal for the staff to become? And I thought a penguin. I mean, what would Egyptians do with that? Right? It'd be like, Poof. 
they would have nothing. They'd be like, what is that? Like, it's, 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 a, it's like a jar that moves. You know, they, would have, they wouldn't know what to do, but, but he, he did snake. Because in the Egyptian thought world, of what you understand in the ancient world, everything was understood through a divine uh, uh, aspect of the gods. The snake was one of their centerpiece symbols for one of their great gods. Pharaohs wore the, uh, the snake as a headdress when, uh, when they, um, uh, in King uh, Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, they saw he had a, a cobra as a headdress. The, the snake was worshipped, it was feared, it was one of these the symbols of, of the gods of Egypt in their strength and their ability to bring death. And so in doing snake, in doing snake, God is saying, you know what? I have mastery over that which you revere. He's, he's thrown down the gauntlet. He says, we're going to work in your world right here, and I'm going to show you what I got. And so he tells, he says to Moses, Pharaoh's going to challenge you, going to ask you to do something. Here's what I want you to do, you know, and he does it, and it happens. And that's great. That's, 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 that's great. And then, and, and, and then we get to verse 11. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian mission, uh, magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. It's probably good that I wasn't there. I mean, each one of them threw down their snap and became a snake. Because, because if I'm there, and I know thinking of me sort of in that ancient Egyptian palace doesn't, in and of itself seems weird. But if, if, if I'm there, I'm like, all right, here's our plan. God said, Pharaoh's going to go, give me something. Show me a sign. And we're supposed to go, Aaron, throw the staff. We're going to throw the staff, and it's going to become a snake. Oh, yeah. You know, and, 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 and it's happening just like it's supposed to. And, and Pharaoh says, show me a sign. Are you ready for this? Wham! They were ready for this, right? And then all, because all of a sudden, they throw all their staffs down. God didn't tell me that was going to happen. <laughs> God didn't say. And oh, by the way, don't worry. The magicians are also going to do the same thing. That would have freaked me out. And it says they did the same things by their secret arts. And we need to understand, the word here, secret arts, is not trickery. This isn't some illusion. This isn't modern-day magic. This isn't some sort of distraction. This isn't the idea that I've often heard where, um, and there even happens today, where how you can somehow take a, a cobra, petrify it, uh, and make it sort of stand perfectly stiff as if it's a snake, and then when you throw it down to the ground, it'll come alive. Which, first of all, who discovers that trick? But, but, but I mean, this, this is not what secret arts is. Secret arts, when it's used in Scripture, always refers to, to sort of sorcery, incantation, magical ability. The plain and straight reading of this is that they did the same thing. Each of them, each of them did it. And then we have my favorite verse. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. First, I find it fascinating, the, the mixture of staff swallowing staff. I, the, this, the language of that is, is interesting. You're probably thinking what I'm thinking. This reminds me of the most recent National Spelling Bee. No, just me. The National Spelling Bee, if you've ever seen it, the National Championship, it's fascinating. But one of the things is on ESPN, which is interesting in and of itself, but you sit there and you start watching it, and the, uh, the, um, the judge guy who says the word, he gives a word, and if you're like me, you immediately try to spell it really quickly to see if you can do it, and you can't. Right? You, you inevitably can't, and so you probably take the position that I take, which is, well... I mean, if I committed 100 hours or so a week to this, I could have been a champion speller. I just didn't commit the time to it. Uh, it's my same response to why I'm not an Olympian. And, <laughs> and, and as I was looking at this, I was watching the spelling bee. It was very interesting. First, it ended with two champions, which bothers me on a philosophical level, but that's for another time. But the rules allow. It ended with two champions, Jairam Hathwar and Nahar Janga. So on the surface, it looks like there were two winners, a tie, if you will. 
But if you watched it, you knew who was the best. Nahar. Nahar was better than Jairam. Now, I admit I might be upsetting the Jairam, Hathor faction here uh, with me. Uh, but if you've seen it, you, you know it's true. Jahar, who's 11? I see 11-year-olds out here. If you'd have tried harder. You... <laughs> but, but it's interesting. So you know, the, you know the process of the spelling bee. The, the, uh, uh, the contestant is given a word, and then contestants are allowed to ask a series of questions. Right? They're allowed to ask for country of origin. Because in getting country of origin, they might get some help on how to spell something. They're asked, uh, uh, they, can, they can ask if, um, uh, to have it used in a sentence, which it seems like a, a blatant stall tactic. But they can also um, get a definition. And Nahar, through all of the quarterfinals and semifinals, followed this basic protocol. He'd receive a word. What's its origin? They, he would receive it. What's its, uh, use in a sentence, please. They would use in a sentence. What's its... Uh, um, uh, definition he would receive the day de- all the way through that normal process until it came down to just two people and then nahar changed instead of asking for definitions of the words he started giving them he gets the word appetitost is that a soft danish cheese Yes, it is. He gets the word teosiach. Is this an Irish prime minister? Yes, it is. He gets the word binyu. Is this an ancient bagpipe from the region of France? Yes, it is. It's, it's amazing. He's, he's clearly flexing. And even when his opponent is spelling the word, you can see Nahar in the background mouthing the letters. The whole way through, yes, it ended in a tie because both of them spelled correctly, but there was only one who was giving the definitions. There was only one who clearly wasn't just using uh, uh, best guesses but understood each and every word. It may have ended in a tie, but my boy, Nihar, won. It may have seemed that Team Yahweh and Team Pharaoh tied, but only one staff swallowed the others. Only one staff fully owned it. And yet this was not enough. Scripture tells us that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. I'll say more about that, but we know this is no surprise that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. God had already declared that Pharaoh's heart would not turn. God had already declared that Pharaoh would not relent. And indeed, God had so um, made sure, had so made sure that the plagues would continue that he affected the heart of Pharaoh. We know this. We've seen this. Exodus 7.3 tells us this. Exodus 7.4 tells us this. You see, the plagues are not about convincing Pharaoh They're about bringing judgment. They're not about giving Pharaoh a chance. Neutral. Binary. They're about revealing the strength of God's power. They're they're, they're about showing to the Israelites that he is the stronger redeemer. And so it couldn't end there, even though all the evidence was needed. And so the plagues began. And the pattern set in the, the staff scene becomes the pattern that unfolds with each and every plague there's a demonstration of god's power there's an attempt to counter by the magicians there is a a hinting of the supremacy of god and pharaoh's resistance and the first plague is the nile the nile was the life of egypt its floods determined the agricultural cycle it was essential to farming. It was essential to producing one of the, the, the staple uh, of their diet, fish. It was a main form of transportation. Uh, the Romans say this, and, it's truly, and, and it is true. Egypt was born out of the Nile. The Nile gave it her life. It sustained her life. So not surprisingly, there are Egyptian gods that were associated with the Nile. 
There were deities, multiple deities that were worshipped in connection with the Nile. And these deities always dealt with life or fertility. It's not an accident that it is the Nile that is the first plague. So when Moses has instructed, meets Pharaoh in the morning, as Pharaoh goes out, he declares what's about to happen. Now what is going to occur will show to Pharaoh that Moses' God is Lord. So you see, the, the, the Nile event is not a cool nature miracle. It carries a message. In turning the Nile into blood, in turning the Nile into blood, that which was worshipped by the Egyptians because it gave life became now death. That which was esteemed as all power, life-giving fertility, the Nile from which the nation was born now became death. And the scene must have been gruesome. I mean, is there anything more gruesome than Exodus 7, 20? All the water was changed into blood. 21, blood was everywhere in Egypt. And it isn't, this, this language, the, the language here doesn't allow for became red like blood. The, the, the verb that is used here is changed. It became blood. Ugh, right? I mean, it was, it, it's morbid. You know, and the Nile fed in to all the reservoirs, all the canals, all the tributaries. It, it is where they bathed. It was where they, how they cooked. It was everything, and now it's just all blood. It was death. Fish were dying. The smell of rot and decay. And, and yet we're told in verse 22, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things. By their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. Come on. Like, I, I, part of me was comfortable with the idea that they could make a staff into a snake. But when I now am faced with the fact that the magicians could also do this blood turning power. What? And so I started looking for where's the snake swallowing scene. Like, you know, where's the, where's the phrase that says, and the, uh, the floods of Moses and Nile swamped the whatever the magicians could do. You know, I wanted that. Like, I wanted that little reminder of how strong it was. And, and I, at first I'm reading this, I'm getting frustrated that I don't see it. Because if this is supposed to be showing me God as the stronger one, why am I not seeing this? And then I begin to notice that what the, the Egyptian magicians can't do. They can't turn it back into the Nile. In fact, all they can do is duplicate and imitate. And, 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 and the irony is the turning of the Nile into blood was an act of judgment that God gave upon the Egyptians. And what the Egyptian mission, magicians can do is further that. They now have become a tool of God in this plague. They can't stop it. They can't change it. They can't mute it. They can't dampen it. They simply make it worse. It's, it's, the, the, the strength of God is so powerful here. The river of life became a vein that was opened without suture. And the magicians could not make it clot. After seven days of this, Scripture tells us, God sent Moses to Pharaoh, and the pattern begins again. God declares his intent to have his people be let go so they can worship. And this time comes the promise of frogs. Frogs. It's interesting comical the nile will teem with it there'll be frogs everywhere everywhere upon the officials there'll be frogs everywhere and i don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the frogs but there's a couple things that i want to note first it's not accidental frogs 
We've seen serpent within the Egyptian deity, Nile within the Egyptian deities. The frog was a symbol of the goddess of fertility. See, see, these aren't accidental choices. There's a deliberateness in these choices. God is saying, you, you worship a, a, a goddess represented by frogs. I'm going to make the frogs work for me. And I'm going to expand them at such an amazing rate that they're going to go everywhere, into pots, into drawers, into shoes, I don't know, into everywhere. You're going to have a frog. <laughs> and it's going to come from the Nile, which was a place of death. This place of death, God's going to go, and I'm going to send frogs from there. I mean, that's power. That's strength. And so he, he sends these frogs out, these, these frogs that go, that go everywhere. And, and the Egyptian mission, magicians can do the same. But again, they can't stop the frogs. The magicians, verse 7 of chapter 8, the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come upon the land of Egypt. They made it worse. I'm sure at some point Pharaoh is job searching for new magicians. Perhaps ones that can take the frogs away. Maybe that's why he comes to Moses. There's this little scene where he comes to Moses and asks Moses to pray to the Lord to take the frogs away. Because Pharaoh here is recognizing his magicians cannot take them away. He goes to Moses and says, do this and I will let your people go. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't let his people go. We do this all the time. God, do this and I will come to church more. And then it happens and we don't speaks to our heart. So Moses grants it and he prays and, and a day later uh, it occurs. And it's interesting how it occurs. Did you see? So, so all the frogs just die where they are. There are heaps of them. Now, you know, this is, this is a little bit where you're like, oh, well, maybe Pharaoh should have been a bit more specific in what he wished for, you know. Uh, but but which, is, which is scarier to to be able to send frogs out of the Nile uh, in great abundance or to make them all die in an instant. Think about what God has just demonstrated. I can bring the life out in abundance that you can't even handle. It'll team, and I can make it all end in an instant. <laughs> the, the stronger one. And yet still Pharaoh refu- refused. We get to the last plague, the gnats. It's interesting, there's actually... For those of you who are wondering about the translation debates behind the word choice for gnats, uh, it could be gnats. It could be mosquitoes. It's probably lice. Yeah, that just happened, didn't it, right? We all just went like, <laughs> whoa, gnats are bad. Lice are worse. But it's probably, probably lice. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that, none of which are appropriate to talk about here. But the... There's countless of them, countless of them. The, the, the lice infect and get into everything, the gnats, if you will, the mosquitoes, whatever, they get into everything. And this time, the story shifts. Verse 18, when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could This time, they could not. Think about these magicians and what they'd seen. They'd seen their snakes eaten. They'd demonstrated an inability to stop what God had done in the Nile, only contributed. They'd shown an inability to stop the frogs. They could only imitate and add. And now they couldn't even do that from the very beginning the magicians the representatives of the gods of egypt the representatives of pharaoh the representatives of the uh, uh, demonic and satanic forces that stand up against and over against the people of god from the very beginning they were counterpunching 
They were counterpunching with all their might, never on the offensive, only on the defensive, round after round, losing on points, if you will, and then they were spent. Then they were done. They came out with their greatest salvo, and God was just getting started. God was just beginning. They gave everything they could, and it ended, and God said, I'm not even halfway to what I'm going to do. No wonder they came to Pharaoh declaring, this is the finger of God. This was something they hadn't encountered before, and they were unmatched. They were neutered. And yet Pharaoh's heart was hard. Maybe now we should discuss the hardening of Pharaoh here. We've seen it today. We've seen it in previous passages. We find the same thing in the New Testament when it speaks of Pharaoh. We see these twin truths. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and God hardens it. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and the result of this is Pharaoh's refusal to listen to the serpent, the three plagues, and his own magician, because God doesn't want him to listen. Not yet. He hardens it. Behind all of this is divine choice that Pharaoh would remain in refusal. And perhaps this seems unsettling to us. Maybe it seems unfair. Seems un-American. Everyone Deserves a fair chance, do they not? And God isn't giving it to Pharaoh. We almost want to turn Pharaoh into a sympathetic character. Except, brothers and sisters, God is not bound by our American civic liberties and our own sense of rights. He is sovereign, and he desired to reveal himself as a redeemer to his people. We've read the psalm, blessed or happy is the nation of God. He wants to reveal himself as the stronger redeemer who determines all things beyond comparison. And so Pharaoh himself serves God's great design. And let's not forget, Pharaoh is not a morally neutral character. He is not one who, Scripture says, is torn about what to do regarding Moses and the Israelites. He hasn't been sitting there this whole time saying, you know, enslaving a people is an evil. You know, enslaving these Israelites is wrong. He hasn't been sitting there going, you know, all of these great gods of which I declare I am one of them. That is horrible. No, he isn't doing that at all. He's not morally neutral. He's not leaning one way and God sort of blocks it. It's not as if his spiritual dendrites are reaching out and and, and the the reception is canceled. You know, the picture I have sort of is this, what divine hardening is, of when, when God gives one over fully to their disposition against him. I mean, that's divine hardening. When God gives someone over fully to their disposition against him. The picture I have is this, is is, is of a person who's sort of pointing a certain way and then he becomes a statue and he stays pointing a certain way. It's not a person who is simply like this and then is made to point. They are pointing that way and then it becomes concrete. That's what this hardening is. This is what is occurring. The hardened heart is a perpetual expression of a heart that was hard. It is to be condemned to remain in a state of rebellion. You see, the great release of Israel is not because Pharaoh changes his mind. By the hardening of Pharaoh, there can be no mistake that the exodus is God's great doing. And this should make us shudder. Who is like God who can harden a heart? But the truth of it all is God's great plan is his own. He is governed by his own counsel and his own will. 
And yet we know that in his great will and plan is the desire to be known. We know God has revealed to us that he is good, that he is good all the time. I mean, why is it, I don't know, why is it that he would take one of his 12 followers of Jesus and have him be a betrayer and then take a man who killed followers of Jesus and make him apostle to the Gentiles? I don't know, but I do not have the counsel of God. Are there those who God hardens today? Yes. Do I know who they are? No. How do I know Pharaoh's heart was hardened? Because God told me it was. Because God told me it was. That's how I know. And it shows that he orchestrated the entire revelation of who he is. Who am I to tell God whom he should harden and whom he shouldn't? But this I know there, but by the grace of God go I. This I know. The question isn't why was Pharaoh's rebellion against God made sure. The question is why wasn't mine? Why wasn't I? Why weren't you? Why weren't we hardened? Why aren't the whole bunch of us like the Queen of Narnia's courtyard, just a garden full of statues in enmity? Because what Exodus tells me, what the plagues speak to, is because we are part of a great love story. We came into this world, we came into it as slaves, as slaves to sin, the sin we inherit, the sin we commit. We're not neutral. We're not neutral voters faced with a binary choice. We are simultaneously slaves to a system that makes us declare we are the Pharaoh of it. What I need is a strong redeemer. What I need someone who can look at my sin and say, I got this. What I need is someone who can look at my weakness and say, I got this. What I need is someone who can look at my struggles, my fears, and say, I got this. What I need is someone who can look at the gods of this world, the gods of this world that have genocide in their wake. You think it was amazing that the magicians could turn the Nile uh, into blood and could send the frogs and can do the serpents. That's just an ancient expression of the power of evil. The modern expression is how there is every week someone being killed because of a following of a religion, that there is genocide happening on a yearly basis. Friends, that is a modern expression of the same power. What I need is someone who can look at the gods of this world and say, I got this. What I need is someone who says, I got this because you are mine. I need to know that there's no contest. I need to know it's not merely serpents that are swallowed up, but it's death that is swallowed up in victory. I need to know that the one who redeemed me is stronger than any of my masters who held me captive. And this is the gospel. Christ is the stronger one. He's not someone who is weak, who fell upon a cross of his betters and the judgment of his superiors. The gospel says that we are free, that we are free indeed. That Christ is the stronger one, that he is stronger than death. He is stronger than sin. He is stronger than the machinations of man. He is stronger than lies and lust and gossip. He is stronger. And so church, we don't walk in fear. Because the one who loves us is the one who holds the power of life and death in his hands. The one who turns rivers into blood, makes the land teem with frogs, sends the swarms, the unmatchable power, the one who brings salvation and judgment. This is the one who loves us. This is the one who sent his son. This is the one who moved heaven and earth so that we can be his people. This is what the plagues tell me about who my God is. He loves He loves us. Let us pray. Great God.
who is like you? Who is like you? Father, we we humble ourselves before you for your power is evident. We praise you that in your great power you show salvation for those who you love. You show a vengeful position towards those who stand against you and your people. Lord, there's nothing that we could do to bring about our redemption. But you've done it all. Lord, you are our redeemer. And you've been creation to make that known. You are the stronger one. Nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, soften hearts today. Those hearts that are hard, Lord, soften them today. Let us see the, the, the hand of God, the finger of God, soften hearts today. Thank you, Lord, for this great love story. It is in your name, the name of the Redeemer, Jesus. I pray, amen.